0: Well, welcome back. Uh, it's good to be with you all. Um, it's good to have another week of, on campus, and um, it's good to see you all again. Um, again, if this is your first time, welcome. I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you can join us tonight. Um, hang out with us long enough, you'll figure out what's going on. But I, uh, also, if you have questions, I'd love to, I'd love to meet up with you. And um, yeah, I'm, like I say, I always love to meet up with you, and none of you ask me to meet up with you, and it hurts you, so... If you're interested, ask me and I'd love to hang out. (laughs) That's not true. Some of you do. Um, Anyways, um, we're going to continue on tonight uh, with what we've been working on. Um, And if you're just joining us, we've been working through the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is a book that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church about 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor. And uh, he is talking to this church and he, he wants to talk about joy, among other things. And so we've been talking about it In how does it relate to joy? Because again, college campuses can be really hard places to have, be joyful people. They can, they, can be, they can be tough, right? Depression, loneliness, anxiety. Those are the main culprits. But there's all kinds of things. Friendship, strife, families. There's stuff in life, stuff in college that makes joy hard. And so... We are asking this week, or, and well this semester, but um, also this week, is how do we get joy? How do we get joy? How do we keep it? And I, we, as a community of Christians, we think that the solution is not just in like social groups. It's not just like get in a fraternity. Not, I mean, those aren't bad things. Social groups aren't bad things, but that, that we don't need more education. We don't need more individual pleasure, that there actually needs to be something bigger that can actually come and inject joy into our lives and give us something more. And, and um, man, I think, I think the best solution is I think and read and study is, I think it's the Christian gospel. I think that is where joy over and over can, again. It, that's where it comes because the gospel, literally it means good news. It means good news of what we just sang about. Jesus Christ, the God-man, dying for our sins, coming back to life, and then watching that trickle out into every, every part of our world and that, that, becoming, that bringing us joy. And part of, that, um, part of that gospel means that there's a community of people who are believing it and who are following that. And that's what we want to be a part of is that community that's believing the gospel and struggling together for that joy. Um, so that's more what like we're going to talk about tonight is that community facet, that community facet. It's going to be less about joy Explicitly, but if you think about it as we work, as we talk about tonight, it's definitely in the background. This thing of joy is definitely in the background. Um, So, Paul, as he's writing, he's moving his letter less from talking about joy explicitly, and he's beginning to talk more about the community of people who are around the gospel. And so, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about that community, talking specifically about unity within that community. Um, And behind that, I think we'll see nuggets of joy. and and I think if you think about it, that link between joy and community—it's pretty clear. Um, remember, if you remember here last week, I said something at the end. I said, "The greatest joy in your life will come from seeking others' joy." I said, "The greatest joy in your life will come from seeking others' joy," and that means that there is a communal aspect of this, and that's a radical statement. For our culture today, and we talked about this again last week, that our world, especially on a college campus, it's all about seeking your own individual pleasure, right? It's all about getting what doing and being and do, the things that will make you feel good, even if it means you do them by yourselves, even if it means um, you're the only one doing it. And and our our culture and our heart tells us today that that joy is in basically getting the most pleasure out of your life. And what Paul is going to show us is actually a different way. That there's actually joy to be found in community. And there's actually joy to be found in, in, in living life together. So let's pay attention and see what he has to say. So if you have a bulletin, um, look on it and you'll see the text. We're gonna, I'll read it and then um, we'll see what it has to say. So this is God's word. Only let your manner of living be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come... engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let me pray for us quickly. Father in heaven, thanks that we can come tonight and um, hear the gospel in music and um, through your word and in fellowship. I pray that we would be changed, that we would be somehow different people through this in small marginal ways, that your spirit would do what it does and transform us more and more um, Peel back the layers of our own hearts. Start with me and, and make us more like Christ. So be with us in this, this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this uh, tonight what I want to do is I want to do some things a little differently. And what I want to do is basically just walk through this, this this section of Scripture because it's a little smaller than what we normally do. Walk through it step by step. See what it has to say. And then we'll start to like make some... We'll, we'll kind of summarize at the end about what it says. So... Um, we'll just walk through it logically, and then we'll tie it up. So let's start. Let's start with verse twenty-seven, and uh, and see what it has to say here. So verse twenty-seven, it says, "Only let your manner of li- of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." And I want to stop there. Now, this is this is a fairly easy sentence to read in, in English, but in the original, which was written in ancient Greek, it's very complex. It's very, very, it's difficult, and. Um, The most literal translation of this could be basically only be worthy citizens of Christ's good news. So that first part, only be worthy citizens of Christ's good news. And I included on there, if you look at the bottom on the other page, there's a footnote that says something to that effect that talks about the Greek text and it talks about citizenship. Now, where is citizenship in this? Where in the world does that come from? Well, it revolves around this word, this Greek word, um, that has to do with the manner of life. The manner of life. And that's just a tough word for us to translate in English. If you know another language or you're learning another language, there's just some words that, are, that just don't cross over well. And this is one of those words. And, and literally, the word in Greek is polituo. Polituo. And uh, do you, what do you hear in that? Politics, right? You hear the word politic or something like that. And and you should hear that word because literally it's a political word. It's a word about political citizenship, about political citizenship. So literally what Paul is saying here, he's saying be worthy citizens. Be good citizens. Now why would he say that to them? Why would he say that to this group? Well, to get that, we actually have to step back a little bit and study who is he writing this book to. Now he's writing this book to a church in Philippi. And Philippi was a city in Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey, uh, right on the coast. And it was a very, it was a kind of like a, um, it was an up and coming city because it had recently in the last, you know, 200 years, so it's relatively new, been granted a Roman seat in the Roman Empire, right? And so this city is really excited because now they're a part, like they're an official part of the Roman Empire, and now they get to be Roman citizens, which was a huge deal back then. If you got Roman citizenship, man, you got like that open doors. It's like a college degree now. Just you got places if you had, your, if you had Roman citizenship. So they were amped about being Roman citizenships. Um, they put a ton of stock into it. It was a very patriotic community. So it was, it was full of probably a lot of retired military people. And they were proud to be Roman. They put a lot of stock in being Roman. You know, and uh, (laughs) so I I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, um, and there's there's like five military bases in Colorado Springs, and a ton of retired military people, and uh, the Air Force Academy, and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's generally like military and conservative-leaning folks, and so I got this. Like you would see tons of people who were proud to be an American, or proud of their country. That's sort of what's going on here. Philippi is like that. And so when they hear this, this command, be good citizens, their ears perk up and they're like, oh, yes, we get this. We know how to do this. But then look what he says here. He, he, he says, he says, be worthy citizens of what? The gospel of Christ, the gospel of Christ, of Christ's good news. Remember what the gospel means of Christ's good news. Now, that's huge that's huge not just for them but that's actually that can be huge for us today i think especially with what's happening right now in our country and paul tells us even more explicitly if you if you look in, if you have a bible you can um, look ahead to chapter 3 verse 20 he says our citizenship is in heaven our citizenship is in heaven and that's a really important point because he's saying two things paul is saying two things in that first he's saying that as christians as Christians, our our allegiance to the gospel, our first allegiance, our first allegiance is to the gospel. Our first allegiance is to the Christian gospel. That we are part of a community, even a even in some sense a political group, not a governmental group, but a political group that is far bigger than any human government or political group or ethnic group. It's the it's the group of Christians, and so that becomes the most important. Identity marker for who a Christian is, is that they're a member of the city, they're a citizen of heaven before your national or your ethnic or your economic identity. And that, it's, it's weird that we to talk about that, but that's really, that's a, that's, a, that's a really important thing for us to hear right now. You know what that means? It means that if you're, 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 your American identity or your Mexican identity or your racial identity is not what defines you. But if you're a Christian, it means that first and foremost, your Christian identity is what defines you. And again, that's, that's hot today because there are remo- there, there's sort of like these new movements. Watch the news. There's new movements in, or renewed movements in America today. Even in Christian circles where like, there's nationalism on the up and up again, right? Um, or, or ethnic based identity is on the rise once again um, and there's sort of this racial pride with nationalist pride mixed in with sort of like some really unfortunate versions of Christianity all coming together and they're saying this is who we are we are we are this group or we are we are white or we are black or we and, and, and Paul would sit down with all of that and say no 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 no, you're getting it mixed up your first identity is that you're a Christian And if that's true, live in a Christian manner. Let your manner of life be something that reflects your Christian citizenship. The Bible shows us that the gospel spans and embraces all cultures and all races and all ethnicities. And it doesn't say one is superior or greater than the other. But then even in the midst of embracing all, it calls us in a sense, to wash, to, to, to wash those all away and say, everyone's welcome, but none of that is what matters. What matters is the gospel, your identity in Christ, what Christ has done for you, not what you're bringing into this, how much money you came into this or what your race was or what's your socioeconomic status. It's who you are in Christ. That's an important message that, that we, have to, we need to relearn and refocus on today. But for, and I could say more on this, but for the sake of time, I'll move on. So look, look with me. We'll continue in verse 27. He says he says here in verse 27, So that whether I come and see you or an absent. Now, what does that mean? It means that this command to heavenly citizenship is constant. It's a constant command. That it doesn't depend on who's around to whether or not you can live in this heavenly manner. And so basically what he's saying here is he says, you can't be a Christian on Tuesday night and Sunday night, but then on rejected on Friday night and Saturday night. He's saying that it doesn't matter who's around, your pastor, the apostle Paul, your Christian friends, all the time he says, no matter what's going on, you're called to live in a manner that reflects your Christian citizenship. We have to be worthy citizens of heaven all the time. Live worthily all the time with everything. So what does that look like? Live as worthy heavenly citizens. Well, there's a ton to say in that. There's a ton of stuff, and we'll, we'll tease it out of this semester. Live in your heavenly citizenship. But he, he gives us three things that going to — he gives us three things tonight. So first, he tells us, look what he says. He says in verse 20, 27, he says, that may I may hear from you that you are standing firm in one spirit, standing firm in one spirit. Well, what does that mean? What does that even mean? Well, let's first of all start with spirit. What is this idea of spirit? Is this like a, a kind of like a unified human humanity, like this kind of like the, the unified human spirit? Or is it something bigger? Is it something different? Well, for a couple of reasons that I won't go into just because it's really detailed and nerdy. Um, but most commentators who read, who read this say, actually, we think this is probably the Holy Spirit stand together side by side in the Holy Spirit. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the greatest source of unity in the Christian community. The Spirit is the thing that glues us all together. Think about it in this room. We have engineers, we have nurses, we have poets, we have storytellers, artists. We have people who are not students. We have Mexicans, we have Spanish, we've got whites. All kinds of racial groups. We've got men, we've got women, rich, poor, somewhere in the middle. A lot is happening even in this room. But remember, none of that, in a sense, none of that matters. Now, it matters who, you're, who you are and where you're coming from. But none of that becomes your core identity statement. What becomes and is your core identity statement as a Christian is that you're united by the Holy Spirit together in what Christ has done and who Christ is. So the Spirit, he, he unites Christians by applying Christ's death, what we sang about. He applies Christ's death to us and unites us. So we're supposed to stand firm in that Spirit that he gives us. Now, how many of that, like, what does that actually begin to look like? How many of y'all seen 300 or a movie like 300? Well, the, you know, you've seen a movie like that where there's a group of men or you know, like an army and they're fighting against just overwhelming odds. And what do they do? Well, if, they, if, they, if they're organized, if they basically got, watch each other's back, they do way better together, right? What makes the Spartans victorious is that they stand together. In a sense, each guy is watching his, other, his, his, his brother, or his other fellow soldier's side. And as a group, they're way stronger than if they were just kind of like a horde rushing at the other side. That's what Paul's getting at here. He says, in a sense, watch each other's back. In the Christian community, watch each other's back. Being united together by the Spirit for the gospel. And he goes, But he goes on, he gives it another metaphor. He says, with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. Again, there he is, calling us to unity. Calling us to unity in the midst of all of the different things that bring us into this room. All the different stories. He says, we're to be united, united together. And again that idea of striving side by side, that's a military word. That's a word in the Greek that just, that means competitively striving side by side. Now, why does this matter? Why does this idea of standing firm and striving side by side? Why does that matter? What is, tomorrow morning? Why does that actually matter? Well, here's what here's how it matters. It means that if you claim to be a Christian, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Lone Ranger Christians do not exist in the Bible. They do not exist. Too often, I think we as Christians, we tend to create, treat the Christian faith as sort of like me and Jesus. This horizontal, like, well, I'm good with God. And maybe we have like a quiet time in the morning, but that's about it. Maybe I go to RUF and I go to, and I go to church, but I'm not really involved with other Christians' lives because that's hard. It takes time. It's messy. It's messy. I'm good. And let me tell you, that's a lie. That is a lie, and I'm telling you, your faith will die. Your faith will die. You cannot just have Jesus. You have to have Jesus' people with him. Yeah, Christians are a huge inconvenience. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes a lot of work. That's the only way that we can be Christians. And, and you know what this means? It means that you and I, we must, we must be involved with other Christians' lives. Last week, Paul said the greatest joy in your life will come from seeking others' joy. But now he puts a sharper edge on it. He commands us. He says, you must not be alone in your faith. You, you need to guard each other's faith. Now, how do we do this? How do we actually do this? Well, I'll tell you what I did in college. <clears throat> when I was in college, I had a group of four guys, and we met every single week, not because I mean, we wanted to, but we needed it. We, I went to college in New York City, and it's a weird place to be a Christian, and to say the least. Um, and so we needed each other to defend I mean, so the group was called SYS. It called, It stood for "share Your, you know." And, and that's what we would do. We'd get together every week for two or three hours and we would talk about life. We'd talk about lust. We'd talk about pornography. We would talk about faith. We would talk about dating. We talked about our quiet times. Nothing was off limits. We prayed. We argued. And I'm telling you, I'm telling y'all, I'm alive because of those guys. I struggled with depression in a huge way in college. And there were dark days where I wanted to kill myself. And those guys talked me, literally talked me off cliffs. It's because I had friends who were there fighting with and for me in my faith. It takes vulnerability and it takes trust and it takes time to develop that. And it's scary, but hear me say it's necessary. And y'all, this is where joy comes from. Joy doesn't come from getting a 4.0. That'll kick you, that'll give you a kick for for a week. And then you'll be back down again on the performance treadmill. Joy doesn't come from landing that internship. You'll feel great while the summer's happening and then the internship's over. Joy comes from knowing and being known by other people. When they know you at your worst and they still say, bro, I love you. Girl, I'm for you. That's where joy starts to happen. And as an aside, I mean, the, those those moments with my God, with those guys, were some of the most joyful moments in my life. And I was I was thinking about it today. I was tearing up because I loved it so much. It was a taste of heaven, being with those guys. The most joy in you will find, the more the, you will not find joy in your life by scrabbling together your own joy, but from seeking others' joy. So what does this mean? It means that we have to be involved in each other's lives. And that's scary. It's time-consuming. But it's good and it's joyful. Even if you look around this room and think, John, I've got nothing in common with these people in this room. And I would say, yeah, you do. If you claim to be a Christian, you've got the unity of the Holy Spirit who's uniting you to Christ and unites you to these other people. You have citizenship in heaven, which cuts through all the other things that superficially seem to divide us and feel, make conversation awkward cuts through all of that stuff and says you have uni- union and community in that and we have to work at it but that's what unites us the best antidote to depression and loneliness to joylessness on this college campus is not a better quiet time it's not a spiritual high after a retreat it's not even medication or counseling those are all good things I've done all of them I still do some of them But the greatest source of joy in your life is going to be in Christian community with other people processing life. Now, that's not where Paul stops. He presses on. Look at verse 28. He says, Not at all frightened of your opponents. Now, we don't know exactly who these opponents are, and we don't know exactly what they stood for. But we do know from Acts 16, which is the narrative, this is a letter, but the narrative of Paul actually in Philippi, that uh, there, were some, there were groups in Philippi who hated Paul. They threw him in prison. They beat him to almost with an inch of his life. They hated him. So you can imagine, they probably were not huge fans of the community that Paul created, the church. So there's definitely opponents in Philippi. And so, but, and so we don't know who they are, but the point is this. The Christian community faced opposition 2,000 years ago, and it faces opposition today. And what is, what is again, there's something here that, that there's, talks about joy again. What is a major robber of joy? Opposition and fear. What robs our joy often today? Being afraid. I do it all the time, especially of opponents. If, somebody, if there's somebody in you know, an RUF or somebody who I know doesn't like what I'm doing, I'm scared to death of them. I'm terrified. Or on other things, don't even think about human opponents. Think about spiritual opponents. They're real. If, if, there, if there's something that's just hammering me and I'm afraid... Man, that sucks my joy out of me. But look what Paul says here again. He says, I'll say once, there's more to say, but he says, because of your unity together, you're not at all frightened of opponents. Because why? You've got each other's backs. You're praying for each other. You're loving each other. You're listening to each other. You're crying with each other. So that there's no opponent that can get in there and wreak havoc. And this brings us to the end of verse 28. The end of verse 28, which says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And this feels like a weird statement. We read this and be like, whoa, where is this coming from, Paul? You've got this train of thought, and all of a sudden, totally going in a different direction. What's going on here? And again, um, for the sake of time, I'll just say this, that Christian unity is a proof of divine salvation. And it's a sign of the destruction of the opponents of the to the Christian community. Christian unity, first, it's a sign of salvation. When we're united, with if we can actually get together with, in the midst of all the things that should tear us apart, and we can power through that and say we're gonna be united as a community around the gospel, man, that's a proof that something is bigger than us at work. Because you know, by all, I mean, just by the way groups interact, we shouldn't be united. <laughs> There's too much diversity here. But when we can get together and say we're united, oh my gosh, that's proof that God is at work. And it's proof that He is pushing back disunity and fear and joylessness. It's proof of their destruction. More can be said on this, but I'll press on to verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Oh, man, this is insane. This is, this is an, a hard verse for me. And this relates back again to the idea of opponents. And remember that Paul is writing this from jail. He's suffering while he writes this. And he's, ta- and he's writing to a church which probably is also suffering because of the opponents. And... Um, Remember, over and over as we've been talking about joy, we've been talking about how do we deal with circumstances in our life, day in, day out, which rob us of joy. We've all got them. The, thing, the things that are going to suck joy out of your life. Um, suffering, oppression, whatever you want to call it. And he tells us, he tells us a little piece of it. Look what he says here. This is insane. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Now that verb... Granted. It's a tough, it's a, a better word for that would almost be graciously given. Graciously given. So God has graciously given, not just for the sake of Christ, that you should believe in Him. Okay, I'm good with that. God graciously gives it that we can believe in Him. But not just that, that we should suffer for His sake. Do you hear what that means? That means that God somehow mysteriously allows and even gives us suffering. As a grace, he gives us circumstances which we think are going to rob us of joy. And he says, no, I'm giving this to you as something that's going to actually make you stronger. That's something that's going to actually produce joy in you. And and Paul tells us in Romans 5, he says, he says, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. What would happen if you had hope that was never, ever, ever disappointed in your life? If you had such a sure hope that could never be disappointed, nothing could rob you of that hope. Man, you'd be joyful. You'd be like, nothing can touch me. Nothing can get in my way. I've got hope that does not disappoint. Well, he tells us suffering gives us that hope. It's a grace somehow. I don't understand how it works because evil's still evil. It's still bad the things that happen to you. I talk to you all week, and I know stuff is going on in your life that sucks. And somehow God is working in and through that to make you, to give you a hope that cannot be disappointed. God gives us suffering so that facing suffering we would we would have joy and hope. God gives us suffering so that facing it together we have joy and hope. Alright, so we've seen a lot in this text. This text is full of stuff. And, and so if we um, if we could summarize, what would be a summary? Um, I think a summary would be this, that Christians are commanded to be heavenly citizens. And that means that we struggle together through opposition and suffering, knowing that joy is on the other side. Let me read that again. Christians are commanded to be heavenly citizens. And that means struggling together through opposition and suffering, knowing that joy is on the other side. This passage is about tenacious community. Tenacious community. This passage This passage is about unity in the face of opposition. Unity in the face of things that would rob our joy. It's a passage about even joy in suffering. It's not not clear necessarily, it's not on the ex, it's not explicit, but it's there that together, Paul says a community can come together that can be bulletproof. That can be bulletproof. So if this is true, how do you and I live differently? Let me give us three suggestions. There's a lot, but I'll just give us three suggestions. One, ask yourself, what does worthy citizenship look like at New Mexico State? What does it look like for my Christian I- identity to be the first thing in who I am at New Mexico State? Second thing, be in community with one another. Being, it doesn't, I don't know what that looks like. It's going to look different for each of you. But be in intentional community with one another. Asking, how are you doing, man? How can I love you? How are you doing, sister? How can I pray for you? Yes, hang out. That's good. But more than that, get involved in each other's lives. Talk about the scary things together. And third, think about this. This is hard, and this is hard for me, but think about how, joy is not an impediment, how suffering is not an impediment to joy, but can even be a source of joy. How suffering is not an impediment to joy, but actually a source for joy. Man, if that's true, that can rock our world. That can make us the most joyful group on campus. That can give you joy that is bulletproof. That no matter what happens in your life, in your week, you can say, God is at work producing joy even in the worst. So, That's what this passage shows us. I'd love to talk more about it um, and, and try and figure it out with you in community. So let me pray for us. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for how it exposes us and peels us back, even me as I was working on it this week. And, shows us um, our own thin spaces, the places where we're incomplete. Father, I pray that we would be a community that presses hard into these things, that's willing to ask hard questions about suffering and joy and living together in community on campus. We pray that your spirit would unite us uh, and that we would be a community that is distinct in our joy and our love for each other. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.